Hello and welcome to the Symposium of the Lotus Eaters. Today we're joined by Connor. Hello. And we are going to be debating secular ethics. Now, let's start a bit about ethics. Mm. Describe the experience, let's say, of, of ethical reflection eth or, let's say, ethical connection to the world. And uh, then proceed to discuss a bit about the moral attitudes or some basic moral attitudes, some basic moral uh, views let's say, and then discuss the question of foundation of ethics, where you have a lot uh, compiled from Stefan Molyneux's universally preferable behavior yep. thesis. And uh, I haven't uh, read it, I must say, or at least I haven't read all of it, yep. but uh, it should be very interesting to discuss. And then we're going to discuss um, divine command theory and the idea that ethics has a theological basis, and we're going to have a debate on that, right? Yep, perfect. Excellent. So the thing is that it seems to me that morality and ethics are really weird in a way. I don't mean this in a bad sense. I mean it in the following sense, that most people, wake, we are sort of an, in an automatic pilot. We tend to assume the beliefs of our cultures, mm. and we tend to adopt frequently wholesale, in other cases, it's a bit more refined, the code of ethics that uh, we are sort of taught about, mm. that we are sort of, uh, that people try to instill upon us. And okay, depending on how rebellious one is, uh, one tries to, let's say, subject it to their varying degrees of scrutiny. So the thing is that to me, it seems that there is a very strong, especially when we grow up at some point, we come to be faced with some moral dilemmas. And there seems to me to be a, a distinction between courses of action and there seems to be a sort of voice. I don't listen to it, by the way. It's, it's, a, it's a, just a way, way of putting it that says that this is the right thing to do. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a fork in the road and, and you get this with the phrase, and I've never really experienced this, but if you're not young and you're a liberal, you have no heart. If you're not old and a conservative, you have no head. And I think what happens for most people is they have a general skepticism of authority. It's particularly induced by lots of people's adverse reaction to institutional schooling, which I definitely have. And so to buck the trend of tradition, they become nihilistic skeptics and very largely the 13-year-old atheist stereotype. Yeah. And what ends up happening is you either float off into the ether and become some sort of hedonistic progressive, as we're seeing more and more people elongate their adolescence, and, and now one in four Gen Z identifying as LGBT is disastrous, yeah. or you re-articulate and reincorporate yourself in the tradition of your country, your religion, and so on. And that's the great value of tradition that you've spoken about in your discussions on Oakshot with Carl. And that is that tradition doesn't, it does some of the thinking for you, because we in the Burkean sense, have our own private stock of reason. It's always limited. And so we benefit from inheriting the great chain of civilization from those who did a lot of suffering so that we don't have to make the same mistakes as they did before us. And that's why we should be grateful for that. And that's why some traditions are really valuable. Some require a little bit of tinkering, but it shouldn't be thrown out wholesale. So, so yeah, morality is contained within those behaviors that we can pick up with the torch and keep running with. Uh, I really agree with what you said. And um, was that Churchill's phrase? That if you're not young and... I think it's attributed uh, to him, but I don't think he ever actually said it. Okay, because that would make 
uh, both of us heartless and two heartless people discussing ethics. What's not to like? <laughs> okay, so, okay. Now, it seems to me that the idea tradition is really important because it is a sort of, whether it involves a good code of ethics or not, and I'm not a relativist in that respect. Mm. I do think that there are bad and worse <laughs> codes of ethics. Um, it seems to me that regardless of the value of the code of ethics, it does have an, an, another layer, another aspect into contributing somehow to the moral formation. So we become the people we are, by and large, because we are members of a particular tradition and because we are somehow schooled and developed into people in that tradition. Uh, what would the alternative be? The alternative would be that we are, let's say, but isolate. We we are like Robinson Crusoe, uh, we, uh, growing up in a particular island where there is no, let's say, connection with other people. There is no moral friction in that mm. sense. There are no moral dilemmas. So it seems to me that for whatever is good or bad about uh, traditions, they do contribute to making us who we are. So. It is part of our identity. Yeah. Can we, I think actually it's a, it's a really good distinction to parcel out here. And the desert island idea is brilliant between morality and virtue. Yeah. So I think morality is interpersonal. Okay. So it's uh, interrelative. You can be put in a moral deficit if you do something bad to someone else, whereas you can only be virtuous in the actions that you take and embody in yourself. So, so weightlifting is not moral. But it is a virtuous thing to do to keep yourself healthy in a, in a ready state to help other people. Okay. So... This is a view that many people put forward. I'm not. I'm not certain that I buy right. into it because it seems to me that it sort of implies that there are no obligations towards ourselves. How so? Because if you say that there is no more, there is no morality in how we relate to ourselves. Morality is always interpersonal. It it concerns only how we relate to other people and how other people relate to other people, uh, there is no room there for things like self-growth. I, I think and you can, sorry. That, that doesn't mean that people don't grow. It, me, it means that self-growth is not seen as a sort of moral thing to do. It may be seen as a sort of virtuous thing to do mm. if we buy into that distinction. But if we buy into that distinction, I think that there is a danger of exiling virtue from morality and talk about virtues that are non-moral. So, for instance, like Aristotle would talk about the virtue of a cutting knife or the virtue of a citizen as not being the same as the virtue of the good man. Mm. So I'm not entirely certain that we should um, take these apart. And I think that sometimes there is a sort of, not suspect, but I would say that there is a, there is a tendency within ethical theory of treating morality as being the impartial perspective as involving a, a completely impartial perspective and ethics are, are as something that is uh, partial and that implies that the, the the partial perspective the perspective that we occupy as human beings where we for instance understand obligations towards let's say our family as being stronger than those towards the children of strangers for instance or strangers it seems to me that the those who are pushing forward this idea of a universalistic and impartial morality, they very frequently try to talk down on those who would say, for instance, that no, there are reasons to be partial to some people. I think, I think some people may use the lack of interpersonal obligations 
baked, sorry, self-obligations baked into an interpersonal morality to avoid working on themselves. Mm. So you get this again with some of the libertarians who say that as long as I'm not harming anyone, I can do anything I want. I would say it's a category error. And I would say the, the reason virtue is distinct but related to morality is that any virtuous behaviour puts you in the state of readiness where when a crisis strikes, you can take the moral action. So we are what we continually do. If we continually do good things, we can reach eudaimonia, to put it in Aristotle's, yes, yes, yes. Aristotle's verse. Um, but if you're talking about the sort of threshold of morality, we enter the world in a state of moral innocence and doing things which would violate objective morality, which we'll come to later, mm. can put us in a moral deficit. So as long as you're not doing those objectively harmful things to another person, you are a moral person, but it doesn't necessarily make you a good person. You're just neutral. To be good, you have to take proactive steps that are good for you and good for others as well. Okay. I see the point, but... It seems to me that there is also an, a further issue because if we take these two perspectives apart, mm. we may fall into the, the following problem. I say we may, because mm. the thing is that we can definitely, if we think of morality as being a system of rules, mm. let's say, that govern interpersonal behavior, and we think of people who act in accordance with these rules as moral, there's a question about the character of the action. So for instance, do people comply with particular rules because they're afraid they're not going to get away with not complying, yep. complying with them? Or do they do it because they think that this is the right thing to do and they want to be good and virtuous people? So it seems to me that the, the just compliance with a set of morals hmm. that would make one moral according to that distinction hmm. robs the, the ethical character of particular actions because for instance we could think of people doing the right thing but for the wrong reasons yeah so it seems to me that there are th this seems to me to imply that we can take apart sort of uh, virtue ethics from traditional morality and i'm a bit resistant to that idea i understand the resistance i i think you can insofar as if you say okay someone on a desert island he cannot murder anyone because there's no one else around. He is moral, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's a good person because he cannot exercise personal and interpersonal virtues with other people. So uh, this is why we can um, uh, police someone who does lots of great charity work, for example, but if they're serial killing on the side and no one yeah. knows about it, they're evil even if they've done virtuous things for other people. I don't think that we could say that someone is moral in that respect because they wouldn't have the opportunity to do so. Because, for instance, you could have a person who would be disposed to be a mm. horrible person, but would not exercise or not act according to that disposition because there would be no people around. So that person would conform to that system mm. of rules and that, that he or she would not violate it. But that would imply that they did not violate it because they didn't have the opportunity to violate it. So aren't we giving sure. them too much, extra, too much credit? for something that they didn't do. Possibly, but then, yeah. okay, the other example I can use is, I wouldn't take morality away from someone who was comatose just because they couldn't do something proactive. Do you yeah. know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're, they're in a state of moral neutrality. Yes. So I think, let, let's, let's, let's conceptualize it this way then. We can say that someone is a better person if they exercise virtue. The bar for moral neutrality is not doing immoral things. So morality is a set of objective tenets that govern how you interact with someone else. As we'll get onto later, I think it's 
you can sum it up as the non-aggression principle. Yep. If you violate the non-aggression principle, you are immoral, <clears throat> and you are a better person if you exercise those extra virtues which put you in a state that Jordan Peterson has said, um, make you capable of bearing loads that other people cannot bear. Yeah. Would that be a fair way of putting it? Or? I, th I think it would be. And it's, it, it's, it's a good thing to tie what Jordan Peterson was saying about mm. this, because there are people who want to call themselves moral, yes. and by not assuming responsibility, they purposefully put themselves in positions where they cannot exercise virtues. Yes. So they are buying, in a way, morality for free. Yes. And that is why it seems to me that it is important to always have the character in mind. So that would be a cowardly thing to do, mm -hmm. but it would be in accordance with, let's say, a particular moral law. They would not violate that moral law. Yeah. So it seems to me that it is important. It's important not to disassociate yes. virtue ethics and the focus on the traditional virtues, mm. or at least the cardinal virtues that many people have been talking about in all ca cultures from antiquity. Because we could say that that would be a cowardly thing to do. Yeah, you don't get undue credit just for being passive. Yes. Yeah. So in a way, and there's a question here: whether not doing the wrong thing constitutes doing the right thing. So putting yourself in a position where you do not, let's say, harm other people, doesn't mean that you act right towards mm. them. It, it means just that you're abstaining from performing bad actions. This is the Peterson, again, distinction between the traditional interpretations of the Beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew with blessed are the meek. Yeah. Lots of people translate that as passive, weak, incapable of exercising harm. Exactly. And no, Peterson instead, and, and I differ slightly on his translation, but he says it's blessed are those who have swords and keep them sheathed. And that means blessed are those who have the virtue of restraint, despite having the capacity to inflict harm when they need it. And Christ repeatedly said, go to his disciples, sell your cloaks that you may at least buy a sword. So that is that is the endorsement of both the secular and the um, secular, uh, <clears throat> sorry, the secular virtue ethicist and the Christian perspective is that you, you don't get moral credit just because you are harmless. That's not yeah. virtuous. The, and there is another principle that is a bit contested, but I think it's an important one that Kant uh, is arguing for. And I think that he, I, I th I'm, I'm really th positive towards that aspect mm. of his moral philosophy. The ought implies can principle. Mm. So if you cannot perform particular actions, um, they sometimes we could say that in some cases they have a name you're not morally obligated to do so right so for instance it would be unfair from that perspective to judge people for not doing what they could not have done it's like if you read a news story halfway around the world about the Uyghurs in China for example yeah. in the concentration yeah. camps we can complain about it yes. but I am not immoral for not hopping on the first playing out there and leading yes. a revolution against the Chinese government. Yes, that would be that would be asking way too much. Yes. And there there is the um, an idea that morality itself should not be unfair. Mm. And we should use morality to elevate ourselves, not talk down to ourselves and try to induce guilt and make make us into You're talking say, to the Catholic here, Stelios. That's pretty much impossible, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay. I, I think speaking of Kant, a really good distinction between Morality, is, as I've conceptualized it, and virtue, as we both agree on, is maybe that morality is categorical, categorical imperatives. So they are universal behaviors which govern how you can interact with other people, versus virtue is a hypothetical imperative, which says that if you're aiming towards the good life, you should do this. I, don't, I, don't, I would not accept the distinction. Okay, I would say on. that that would be for non-moral virtue. 
I do think that, for instance, in you can have categorical imperatives and, and virtue ethics together. And I'm not the only one thinking yes. this, uh, but uh, let's keep that for the end. Yeah, okay, sure. Okay, so what, what I said in the beginning about ethics being a bit weird is the following, is that if we start thinking about it, if we start thinking about the propositions that we use, we do appeal to some properties that are normative. Mm. So let me give uh, this illustrate a distinction. So for instance, if I say this table is, let's say, has uh, three colors, mm. I'm not saying anything normative. I'm referring to the properties that this table has. Mm. And it seems to me that this is a wrong statement to make, by the way. <laughs> Okay, but you understand that there is no appeal to descript to normative properties. Yes, we can appeal to color, and we could say it's uh, light green, mm. for instance, L light uh, brown. These are non-normative properties. We mm. could say they are descriptive, but when we talk about ethics, we are saying that some actions, for instance, have the property of rightness or wrongness, mm -hmm. or we have states of affairs that have the property of justice, lack of justice, or moral goodness, mm. moral badness. And uh, when we talk about moral virtue, we don't talk just about the uh, something being good at a particular task, like, uh, let's say, a particular fork being a good fork. We are saying that someone has a particular moral quality about his or her character. Mm. So if we stop to think about it, and we really think about it, Aren't these properties a bit weird? Now, let, let me just say that there is a trap that we may fall into when we, for instance, repeat particular words. Mm. After a while, we say, what nonsense. This is just senseless. You know, but if we l l think about it, we are confronted with a world full of objects with descriptive properties. Mm. And we somehow talk about normative properties. How can we reconcile that? I think we can. But the thing is that it's not, it's something to contend with. It is not something to be taken as a given. And that is why I say that ethics is a bit weird, because if we pay close attention at ethical statements and the language that we use when we unreflectively, un unreflectingly talk about what we should do or shouldn't do, mm. we are appealing to properties that seem to be completely unlike the properties that we encounter uh, uh, in the world around us, right? So, so, or at least the physical properties. If I can, if I can draw a distinction about the weirdness of, of morality, then, yeah. For me, to to parcel out again the the morality virtue distinction, I would see using the fork example, virtue as teleological and a question of utility, because even though you can have objective actions that are you should you should definitely do this if you want this desired outcome or if you have this uh, pre-existing motivation um, they have a subjective and contingent motivational basis whereas morality is deontological it's not a question of if you want this then do this it's just the innate rightness and wrongness of an action so i don't i don't know if i don't know if weird is the right word what can you can you unpack that a little bit more just because i'm yes because i'm i'm saying that we let's say are so much acquainted with a world with physical objects with physical properties right and 
somehow we are talking about actions mm. and states of affairs and character traits as possessing qualities that are completely unlike the descriptive properties of objects we see around us. Right. And also it's, this is, yeah, so this, this ties onto my distinction that I'm trying to work out because we can say that a, a good man is doing proactively virtuous things. Yeah. Much like we can say a good fork serves its purpose, but then morality, the innate action of right and wrong between humans is unique to human consciousness because we can posit these abstract hypotheticals that go beyond just the utility of an object or an animal serving its instinctive purpose. I think that the way to think about it if we dig a bit deeper onto mm. ethics and metaethics, which is the study of ethical properties and ethical statements, we can think of how ethical theories are generated if we focus on the relations of their basic ethical terms, mm. or at least how most ethical theories are created by focusing on that. So for instance, uh, let's take the three traditional or the three major moral distinction. The one is between moral goodness and badness, the other is morally right and morally wrong action, and morally virtues and morally vicious trait. Right. Um, we could say on a first notice that major theories put a different emphasis on each of them, and they try to mess with their order of relations. So, for instance, consequentialism. Mm or uh, let's take utilitarianism, yep. okay? Utilitarianism is a form of consequentialism. It's not the only one, but it is a form. It prioritizes goodness, mm. moral goodness and moral badness, and it bases what is right on what is good. Mm. That is why it's called consequentialism. So the goodness or badness of consequences determines the rightness or wrongness of the action. Yeah. And the person who habitually acts in such a way to bring forth the greater good, mm. the greater good, shut it, <laughs> is a morally virtuous person. Yeah. For according to a consequentialist perspective, the opposite is uh, the person who habitually acts so as to bring forth bad consequences mm. is a morally vicious person. So in consequentialism, we have the basis of the theory, the basic template of the theory. We can understand it by means of the order of a priority that consequentialists uh, use when they when they build their theory. Mm. The ontologists, on the other hand, for instance, they would start with the rightness or wrongness of the action, mm. and they would uh, say that that's primary. Mm. And very frequently, some virtue ethicists would say that, no, we should start with neither. We should take vice or uh, virtue to be uh, the basic stuff. Now, there are th these are really... I'd say th these are not sophisticated ways of putting it, but it is a way of starting think to think about it. Mm. So it seems to me that what you're describing is a sort of modern worldview with respect to ethics right. that would require virtue to be secondary, at least. Whereas what I will be arguing for and what I um, embrace is something like a marriage between deontology and virtue ethics. That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So, Which, uh, let me just say this, that uh, I think that uh, one of my favorite philosophers who does this, and I think he does it well, is uh, William David Ross, the British uh, right. intuitionist of the early 20th century. 
I think that uh, Ross is an excellent uh, philosopher and, you know, just, yeah. Do, do you want to add something yeah, to Yeah, so, so with that distinction, that broad distinction, I think what you've outlined there is with the consequentialists, because the result only matters, virtue individual virtue is basically extricated from the moral process yeah. because you can do all sorts of heinous things but if you accidentally trip over a banana peel right at the end of committing mass murders yes. and decide to throw a bunch of puppies into a dog shell well, you've done the right thing you know um uh, that's a very crass example but you, you know what i'm saying whereas at least with the ontology even it, because the the in, the action is innately right and so taking right action makes you a moral person then Virtue ethics is compatible with that, and I might use a Christian analogy here because I've already used the Peterson one, but you never know when judgment day is coming, so you never know when you're going to be judged, so all you can do is be continent in virtue until you arrive at judgment, and so virtue ethics is compatible with the ontology because you never know when there's going to be a circumstance where you have to choose an objectively right or wrong action, but you can make yourself continent in virtue so that you can bear those crises when they arise. I think this shows a really good... Um in a, in a good way, a problem with consequentialism, mm. that you cannot, for instance, freeze the world and say that these are the, th that's the end point and say that these are the consequences. Everything freezes. <laughs> We're just going to do movie quotes for this entire podcast, yes, aren't we? I must say that I'm guilty of constantly uh, 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 Referencing quoting, Batman and Robin. Yeah and, yeah. and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, It's a joy to have Stelios in the office. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So basically what I was saying is that you cannot freeze the world and say that these are the end point consequences mm. and we are going to judge particular actions in terms of how they conduce to the goodness or badness of that end point. Mm. The world is constantly in flux. Mm. So you can never know whether for, that's one of the arbitrary features of consequentialism that, for instance, you could say, well, this action brought forth these outcomes. Yeah, but maybe these outcomes are going to bring worse outcomes in, in, the, in the near future. Yes. So yeah. that's, a, that's an issue. With something like Judgment Day, you could have something like that. You could say that, for instance, okay, now it's Judgment Day. Everything, mm -hmm. now things freeze in, from a moral mm -hmm. perspective and we judge according to consequences uh, now. But you could say that uh, utilitarians did not have this mentality because uh, especially Bentham, Bentham mm -hmm. was insanely re uh, reformistic and he wanted to sort of create the perfect society in a mathematical way. Mm. And uh, he started with uh, the hedonistic utilitarianism and he brought, was brought down to the level of detail where he had the panopticon, this... Uh, yeah where he was talking about how the prisons should be structured. So Bentham was a reformer and he wanted to reform our understanding of virtue and vice. That is why utilitarians very frequently and consequentialists, they want to tell us that we are very much wrong about our understanding of vice and virtue. Mm. Now, to a degree, this is something that most ethicists do. Mm. So for instance, even Plato, who is let's say Plato and Aristotle are the paradigmatic virtue theorists of the ancient world, along with Confucius, let's say. Mm. They are saying that people have a wrong understanding of virtue. Mm. But Bentham wants to take that a step further. He wants to say that virtue isn't as, is completely derivative from consequences mm. of action. It's, it doesn't have the element of being worthy for its own sake. Or, or at least the way we understand it. Mm. Yeah. 
So let's uh, go a bit to discuss some moral attitudes. And I want to say um, there are four, because it seems to me that it's good to lay them out and tie them to some basic theories like relativism, subjectivism, nihilism, and understand how they relate. So I have four, no, three attitudes here. One, one is moral fanaticism. Uh, the other is moral nihilism, and the other is moral skepticism. So I would say moral fanaticism is the extreme form of moral dogmatism. So dogmatism, in an epistemic sense, has the idea that you, you can know, the, the, entails the belief that you can know the truth. Mm. So in that, it doesn't have the negative consequences that we traditionally associate with dogmatic people. It just says, from an epistemic perspective, that you think that there are some truths that we can know. A good example of this, as you've mentioned already, would be Plato and the world of forms. All you need is to consult the runes or think really hard and try and extrapolate knowledge from the forms. And so you've got this, you can translate from the perfect conceptual realm to our flawed material realm. What we should do, we can recollect all knowledge. And so all it takes is a philosopher king to understand that and then rationally reorder all society towards a utopia. You could say, for instance, that do you know two plus two equals four? Yes. So are you a philosopher king who wants to reform society? No, because I... Let's... How do I put this? That's a linguistic codification of an objective concept, but I'm not claiming that I have access to the totality of knowledge from another realm. Like, I'm not, I'm not claiming I can pierce the veil and, and pull things yeah. from there. I mean, Plato didn't say that he knew everything about the abstract realm. Uh, no, he, he didn't say he could, but he said instance, hypothetically you could. Yeah. Mathematics, for instance, is uh, is very much uh, very much applies to the world, mm. and you could say that without mathematics, physics would not have developed to the de to the degree of development it has achieved now. Mm. So this is a form of uh, way in which the ideal does apply to the real. Sure, but then I would say that if you're saying there is a complete parallel realm of ideals that's a literal reflection and more perfect version of our current world, then it doesn't just stop at mathematics, which says how each of the threads fit together, but not determining how they will act. Uh, instead, it gets down to the Bentham level of, I can hyper-conceptualize the perfect prison derived from the world of forms and then just map it onto our world. The thing is, because this ties a bit with our love discussion, Yes, uh, Symposium 9, do give it a watch if you haven't done so already. Uh, because the thing is that I think that Plato would not be as reformistic as Bentham, mm. because Plato does and accept that we have a sort of dual nature. We have the rational nature and the irrational or irrational nature. And he does accept that the world of the senses is imperfect. And uh, one of the major, let's say, breakpoints with antiquity in modern philosophy is precisely that idea that uh, modern philosophers do think that we can and we actually do have physics to map the world and uh, by means of uh, perfect laws of physics. Mm. So this is a, I don't think we should, I think you're a bit harsh with Plato. I'm sure you'll forgive me. And the thing is that in Plato, there is this idea that you constantly try to exercise your rational nature mm in order to be, let's say, higher than the people who don't exercise their rational nature and engage in, in let's say, a sort of sensual debauchery and mm. things like that. So for Plato, it's not 
the Plato would not be the utopian that we would expect from, let's say, modern world utopians. But I think the governance structure of the philosopher king, based on the idea that you can have perfect knowledge if you just think hard enough, does open the door to utopianism, right? It could. Yeah. It could. Yes. Um, okay. Now, another attitude is... Now, let me just finish with moral uh, fanaticism and dogmatism. I would say that the moral fanatic embraces a proposition or an ethical quote without question and proceeds to be intolerant of moral disagreement and believes in coercing people to be moral. Now, moral... I think that this is very much distinct from moral dogmatism mm -hmm. because I think that you can definitely think that you can cognize some moral facts mm without that making you intolerant of people who see things differently and without making you, let's say, unable to disagree with others. Mm. So it seems to me that, for instance, especially, and this is one a good feature of the modern world. I don't think we find it in the ancient world as much or, or, or at all, that uh, we are much more prone to accept that other people view things differently and that we should not coerce people to be moral because that's a contradiction in terms. I, I think this is the healthier version of this hypothetical that there is a perfect objective truth out there, but rather than our ability to perfectly understand it, we, through sense perception and limited knowledge, given time constraints, are engaged in a disparate and diverse enterprise in uncovering what is true from subjective avenues. Is C.S. Lewis's in Abolition of Man, his concept of the Tao, there is an objective undercurrent of reality, like a mathematic of how all things work, and even though we cannot access perfect knowledge because human reason is limited, the, the cross-cultural commonalities in the threads of what we're identifying indicate that we're all sort of desperately working towards understanding what that is. And so we can have a modicum of tolerance for what seem like moral fellow travellers. That doesn't mean we have to debate everyone, especially not people that are trying to rationalise obviously evil yeah. things. But if we seem to be getting at the same conclusion from different directions, we can at least debate that. And I think that's a really healthy way of doing yes, it. Yes, I think it's an issue of where we draw the boundary mm. and be at least being prepared to not coerce people when they disagree with us. I, I think that's that's a good feature of the mod, modern, modern world. Mm. Yeah. So another thing, but let me say, the reason why I point out the difference between moral dogmatism and moral fanaticism is because very frequently we, see, we encounter people who think that, oh, you think you know the truth, therefore you're a tyrant. Yes. Therefore you want to impose it on me. Yeah. And you regularly see this in when you teach ethics, for instance, in first year undergraduates, all of them think that, oh, you're a moral authority. You're going you're gonna to coerce me to be good. Oh, I see. <laughs> you've been reading the YouTube comments on my segment, Stelios, where people treat advice as if, as if it is some kind of law. Um, no, me saying something that is good for you is not tyrannizing you. And too many people do treat some sort of prescription that people state as a fact as some kind of incursion on their liberty just because they've heard it. That's yeah. nonsensical. And the other two, I think that it's this distinction between moral fanaticism on the one hand and moral dogmatism mm. on the other is really important to, let's say, offset some criticisms that frequently, let's say, moral skeptics make of mm. the moral enterprise. And I think that this is really important in, in our days because we do have a culture that unfortunately is very reductionist, at least in the way that it portrays human beings. Mm. So. For some reason, it seems to me that many people take it as a sort of given, or at least 
They, th they implicitly believe that we are just meat machines. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.